Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center. This is episode 102, The Next First Steps. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, and other folks about their part in America's space exploration program. And today, that means getting their thoughts on space exploration of the past as well as of the future. We hope you've heard NASA's been celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Big parties. Well, two weeks ago, Gary talked with NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstein about the significance of the anniversary and the agency's current plans to return astronauts to the moon in the next few years. Last week, he and JSC historian Jennifer Ross Nizel hit on some of the lesser-known stories of Apollo 11, and we heard a few Apollo veterans share their memories of when they made history. The thing about that history is, the chances are you don't remember it. About 65% of the population of the United States today is under the age of 50. That means for roughly two out of every three people you meet, the first landing of human beings on the moon is a topic from history for them. It's not something they experienced. Well, I do remember 1969, and believe me, it was a huge deal. The fact of NASA meeting President Kennedy's goal of landing men on the moon in the 1960s was mind-boggling for those of a certain age who never even conceived of such a thing in all their natural-born days. And for many of those who were children during that historic summer, it set their lives on a new course of scientific and technical study, and for some of them, a career in the space program. Now, over the last few weeks, I've had a chance to put a microphone in front of some of the leaders of the human spaceflight programs and offices at NASA today to hear their memories of Apollo 11 and learn how that influenced their lives, but also to get them to share their thoughts on the value of putting the human in human spaceflight and to talk about why they're so jazzed about the emphasis within NASA today of creating a sustainable human presence on the moon soon. And as you're about to hear, these discussions of the past very quickly turned into dreams of the future that go far beyond the moon. Ready? Here we go. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch the mid-flight circuit. There she goes. We can read about history and study it as a set of facts. Or we can try to get inside the history by living it through the experience of others. It turns out that most of the people who are leading NASA's human spaceflight programs today have their very own real memories of the Apollo 11 moon landing that happened 50 years ago this month. It was for them a real thing, an experience they lived. And today they can talk about it so the rest of us can share it and can see how it informs today's human spaceflight programs and how it's influencing what NASA plans to do next, starting with the return of astronauts to the moon by 2024. Eagle landed on the moon on a Sunday afternoon at 3.18 Houston time. Neil Armstrong put his first boot print in the moon dust at 9.56 that evening. 
So most of the kids of that day were all in exactly the same place to see this piece of history unfold. They were in front of the TV at home with their parents. And that included several of those who would grow up to work in the human spaceflight program and who today are in positions of leadership, including Mark Geyer, the director of NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. I was 11, and so, and I lived in Idaho at the time, Boise, Idaho. We had three channels, um, no ABC, just the other three. We had a PBS, so we had three nice. channels. Um, and I remember that day, my brother and I, we went to the convenience store and bought those space sticks, you might remember, and they were like chalky tasting um, sticks. They were, there was vanilla, chocolate, but they were cool because it was like you were in space. <laughs> we did that, and then when they landed, and then in, I remember it being um, uh, in, the, in the evening. I've talked about it before using our fireplace uh, tools, pretending I was collecting rocks on the surface as Neil was Neil and Buzz were walking around so I remember that I remember the living room I can and my, my, my mom was there she stayed up with me and we watched it together so that was really cool the International Space Station program manager Kirk Shireman and the Orion program manager Mark Kirisich have similar memories I remember as a, a young child I guess I was six years old uh, I remember very distinctly watching watching the first steps on the on the moon you know it was a big deal for our family um i remember that the quality of the tv wasn't very good although at that time i don't think it was a big deal even now i remember i remember the quality not being that good but that was amazing to be even even see it oh my goodness i it is it is clear and distinctive like it was yesterday one of the most vivid memories of of growing up it was july 1969 i was nine years old at the time I was sitting in the living room of my family's house where I grew up, in case you were wondering, 1500 South Highland Avenue in Lombard, Illinois. Okay, we'll all run there now. <laughs> yes. Look at the picture. And uh, I, was, I was sitting on the couch in our living room with my dad on one side of me and my little six-year-old sister on the other side of me. And we watched the landing, and I was glued to the TV set. And after after Neil and Buzz actually walked on the moon, well, they were walking on the moon, there was a cutaway to a commercial or something. Uh, my sister and I dragged my father out into the street because we wanted to look up the moon and find uh, Buzz and Neil. We didn't, we didn't that night, but it was clearly one of the most vivid memories I have from my childhood. The memory of that day is a little bit different for the woman who today is the manager of NASA's commercial crew program. And that's because Kathy Leaders was in a very different time zone 50 years ago. We're all getting old. I we, know. I have a memory so of do Apollo I. 11. Yeah. <laughs> but I, it's, uh, it's of my dad. My, I was living in Tokyo at the time. Oh. And my, uh, my dad woke us all up early and, and said, you need to come down because this is like a memorable moment. So he'd come down the stairs and, of course, on a black and white screen, you know, dragging us in. And you just see this little picture of people climbing down a ladder and standing on the moon and I and you know at the time I was five and so you know but it's always been this kind of distant memory of seeing people on TV standing on the moon it's just amazing John McCullough had something of a different than usual experience of the first moon landing too 
Fifty years ago, the man who now oversees the Johnson Space Center's support of all NASA exploration objectives as Director of Exploration, Integration and Science was a preschooler on a family road trip. I absolutely do. I have actually three space memories from when I was very young, very formidable, that stuck with me and still stick with me today. And so the first one is Apollo 11. I was four and a half years old. We were on a family vacation. We traveled a thousand miles from, I lived in Ohio, and we were going to Minnesota to visit some family friends. And I remember going across the Mackinac Bridge, this big giant bridge, and I remember stopping and, and, and watching in the black and white TV, the Apollo 11 landing. And that was a huge, huge moment. The whole family uh, gathered around and watched that piece of it. Uh, so it was a it was a big deal. And you didn't I stop and watch it in the car. No, right? no, we were at, we were at a house, so it was good. But it was a black and white, you know, console TV. Sure. I remember it vividly. So uh, we still talk about that periodically. There are some leaders of human spaceflight in America today who are too young to remember Apollo 11, like Laura Kearney, the deputy manager of the Gateway program, and Steve Kerner, the director of flight crew operations at JSC. Yeah, I was uh, about seven months old when Apollo 11 happened, so I don't have a direct memory of Apollo 11, but I do. By the time the Apollo program was coming to the end, they were flying their last few flights. I was about three, three and a half, and and I do remember that. I remember really? watching on the television with my family and, and and seeing something that looked really cool on the television. I, you know, looking back at it now, I I had no concept of what a significant achievement it was at the time, but um, I. I definitely remember watching it on television with the family. And having some understanding of of what was happening? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, it was clear to me at the time that it was a man, and that man was on the moon, and that was very different than being on the Earth. (laughs) So, you know, even as a child, I understood that that was um, kind of a big deal. Just, you know, at that point, no appreciation for the, the magnitude of the effort that had to come together to make something like that really happen. You know, I was very, very young on Apollo 11, so I don't have a specific memory that ties me to Apollo 11. I do remember two things um, in the Apollo program. I can't pintail them to an exact mission, but watching on a grainy black and white television, uh, Apollo astronauts standing on the moon, I can't even tell you at that age who, which astronaut it was standing there, but I can remember uh, family gathered around watching on this grainy black and white television and Apollo astronauts standing on the moon. At the age I was at, I don't think I appreciated the significance at the time. Fast forward a couple years later, and I believe it was an Apollo-Soyuz capsule that we went out in the backyard and we watched in the night sky as it circled the Earth. We could see it go overhead. And even then, at a young age in the early 70s, thinking, how is that possible? People are on that, and I remember just just questioning the how. Others of today's leaders are younger still. For Holly Writings, the chief of the flight director office here in Houston today, her first memory of Apollo 11 came from a science teacher. Wow, the first thing I remember learning about Apollo 11. Um, so I was, I was very young when I uh, sort of had some awareness of space. So this is elementary school. Okay. Um, and I had an amazing, amazing science teacher. Um, her name was Miss Daniel. We called her Science Daniel, not necessarily to <laughs> her face. Um, and so uh, she really was excited about space. And of course, being the age I am, uh, we would go to the cafeterias and watch the shuttle launch. 
um, at the time. Again, this is about the sixth grade, but you know, she did an amazing job of explaining to us, you know, space and how we'd arrived at that point. Um, which obviously, you know, you had the Apollo missions that that came first, much before we had the shuttle. And right. so, you know, that's kind of my first memory of understanding. You know, one the concept of human spaceflight, right? And just that amazing endeavor. And two, the history of how we'd arrived, you know, at that point in time, again, when I was about in the sixth grade. As the leaders of America's human space exploration programs today experienced the Apollo 11 moon landing in different ways, so too were they influenced by it in different ways. For people like Mark Kirisich, the impact of Apollo 11 was direct and its influence never wavered through their lives. It, uh, it not only inspired my education and career, it changed a lot about my family's life for me, starting with our next family vacation. We, in the summer of 1970, our family vacation down at the Kennedy Space Center. We were in Cocoa Beach. I still drive by the hotel uh, on the A1A mm -hmm. highway where we stayed that year. So it changed a lot about my life. I was, I was really, Apollo um, inspired me, if you will. It, it interested me in science and math. And I don't know that I was smart enough at the time to know I wanted to work in the control center, wanted to be the flight director, but it definitely pulled me in that direction. And was that what you studied in school, for example? Yeah, that's when, when and I went to high school, studied math, science, and, and I was an engineer at the University of Notre Dame. Most of the others say that the Apollo 11 mission was a strong part of an influence that was exerted both before and after those couple of weeks in July 50 years ago. Here's Steve Kerner and then Mark Geyer. At the time, I don't think either watching the Apollo event on the television or seeing that capsule in the sky, I definitively said, hey, that's what I want to do. I just wasn't knowledgeable enough in knowing at that young age what that even entailed. But as I um, as I aged, as I uh, watched rocket launches subsequent to that, that same inquisitive how uh, kept resonating and ultimately led me to, to look into uh, pursuing engineering as a, as a career choice or a college major, to, to, to state it that way. Um, but absolutely, I think it was linked to those events of how is this possible? How is this happening? And uh, as I got smarter and realized just how hard human spaceflight is, yeah. boy, that was that was uh, um, an incentive to pursue. And you stuck with it. I, you've worked at NASA your whole career, right? Yeah, I was fortunate straight out of school. I had an internship while going to school um, and was able to join NASA straight out of school. So I've been with it. Had different roles throughout the years, but uh, uh, human spaceflights uh, is my passion. It wasn't just that one moment. Okay. Um, I remember all the Gemini launches too. I remember going, I had tonsillitis. I remember being in the hospital and they decided it was time to take me in and there was a launch about to happen and I was upset that we were, <laughs> I wasn't going to see it. So I remember the Gemini launches. I remember all the Apollo launches. My brother and I had the models. We knew how we, uh, orbit rendezvous. We knew all the, how all that stuff worked, at least to the level you could as a kid. Um, so to me, the landing was uh, a piece of that, a big piece, right? Because it was success, but we'd been, I'd been following it long before then. It was very exciting. And I, I take it that you, that was a goal for you then to want to wanna be in that program in some, some fashion? Yeah, I knew I wanted to be a part of, of it because one, it was um, very exciting. 
uh, it looked very difficult and also that it meant something you know it was more than just um, I don't know it meant something bigger than myself it was part of a national actually a world thing I mean I just remember at all these big events how many people would stop and go to their TV not just the landing but all sorts of things Apollo 8 everything um, so it just meant it, it was uh, it's hard to put into words, but it was kind of a feeling. It was more of a national focus. And I said, well, that would be great to be a part of something like that. For John McCullough, the Apollo 11 landing was inspiring and motivating, but only the first of three big events he remembers. The other events, obviously, um, one of them is, is really my mom was very supportive. And I would uh, go in the backyard at a very young age and dig up rocks and she would convince me they're moon rocks and I was I was doing the right thing and they were cool and it was in downtown Cleveland so it was like pieces of concrete and stuff you know but, but it had holes in it and stuff and she's like that's a moon rock you know she's right right the moon and the earth are joined so so yeah it's all joined in one piece and then uh, in the early 70s there was a comet that came through and I remember a big deal about that comet Kohotek and it was a yeah. big deal and uh all the three of those events kind of by the time I was in fifth grade I wanted to be an aerospace engineer and I was going to do stuff in the space program. For Laura Kearney the more direct influence came during high school from the space shuttle program the first flight of Sally Ride the loss of Challenger but even that didn't set her on a course straight to NASA's door. I was actually not one of those people that went to college saying, I'm going to college to go to NASA. Okay. Um, I was, again, more interested in just combining my love of engineering with my love of the you know, human and medicine. And um, towards the end of my uh, college career, NASA was at Texas A&M, where I was a student, uh, recruiting for biomedical engineers or the folks that sit console you know, during the missions and take care of the crew. and. And I think just the light bulbs went off for me. I'm like, I, it never really dawned on me that with that kind of background, I could work in the space industry. You usually think of aerospace engineers uh -huh. or things like that. And, and so that made a connection for me. And, that, and that's how I came this direction is more through the biomedical engineering and space life sciences path. Kathy Leaders started off on a path that led in an entirely different direction before she was re-vectored to the space program. I'm not one of those people that said, from that, I'm going to go work for NASA. Right. right? I, I said, I'm going to go off and work on Wall Street. <laughs> and then I kind of, after going and going and getting a business degree with a finance background and doing a couple other things, I came back and said, I want to become an engineer. And as I was working through engineering, then I started co-oping with NASA and uh, and started realizing really how to apply some of the practices that I learned through my business degree and kind of meld it then with my engineering degree and, and seeing kind of the value of what NASA does from a um, engineering uh, fundamental, it allows us to do a peaceful engineering job. You know, I started realizing when I was coming out of school and you start looking out there at what are the opportunities for engineers at the time, a lot of the defense contractors were pulling people in. And what you realized was, I realized I had a chance from a NASA perspective to apply my engineering knowledge in a way that was going to further mankind. And, and how many places can you do that? When I was coming out of school and, and, and this is about... Uh, 
early 90s at the time people were really struggling with am I going to go where am I going to go do my job what am I going to go work in a place where I'm building a product which is a noble goal am I going to go build you know different things that are going to make us safer that's also a noble goal but people were conflicted about the things that make you safer are also things that kill people and so so when you have it you I really realized you know as I was working the co-op that I have a job that I can go work to be able to further our knowledge and perform a mission in a way that um, not only is going to help us as a country be able to expand but also be able to expand our knowledge for all the people on the earth. I grew up in Japan and so you, when you grow up overseas you realize that it really is a world community and as a world community it's always been really important to me that we get to operate as a world community and so the great thing with NASA is you get to operate as a world community with other spacefaring nations and it's a way to do that peacefully. For others the influence of Apollo 11 did contribute to their education and career path but actually became a stronger influence after they got to NASA. Kirk Shireman. I don't know that that event itself inspired me to come to NASA. I don't, I don't, I don't remember it that way. But I think that event really has inspired me at NASA. You know, uh, what, what I remember is that, uh, of course, people walked on the moon. Uh, you know, that, the biggest thing throughout my, my life, certainly uh, since that point, was that, that we can do anything. And so the things that we've accomplished since then, the things that we do, I would say, every day, is there's really nothing we can't do because we were able to put people on the moon. So, of course, we can do all these things that, that are put in front of us. So I think it's really been more of an inspiration in terms of the, the, the boundless capacity of, of humans. I think, we can, I think we can do anything. Can we put people on Mars? There's no question in my mind. And I think it all ties back to that, that event as a young child. All of these folks have spent some or all of their careers working as part of a team, executing a coordinated plan to put human beings on top of the controlled explosion that is a rocket launch and shoot those people into space to explore. I wanted to know why they feel it's important, to use the old phrase, to have a man in the can. Why do you think it's important that we send people to explore space? I'd say for me personally, it, it transcends, you know, all of the challenges we have in the world today, just with different uh, countries, different borders, different perspectives. And if you think about it, it just ties every human together, right? It's this amazing endeavor that, that takes just so much energy and technical expertise and fortitude and you get up to space and of course I've not been myself but you speak to the astronauts and of course we have the benefit of sitting in mission control watching the beautiful pictures come down every day and you just see the planet and so really to be a part of experiencing that and making that happen for the entire world you know really to move move us forward as a, as a human race. The human mind is an incredible machine and we uh, the mind is capable of learning and adapting so much more than any computer that we may ever develop and we saw in Apollo that when we sent those scientists to the surface their ability to learn and adapt and enhance what we were trying to do I mean just multiplied our capability so much more you know the rovers on Mars are, are incredible machines but even then they're limited 
Um, so that's number one. Number two, I think it is, um, you know, we, I believe that the, that our destiny is, as a species is not limited to Earth, that we will go out into the solar system. And so to me, this is the beginning of that destiny too. Asking the first folks that sailed the seas, why is it important? Or asking the first folks that flew, why is it important? You look back and now it seems commonplace that of course it was important, but I don't know that they started off with all those answers. Um, but that, that inquisitive human nature of this is something that, that uh, ought to be pursued. So that, that's kind of at one almost general level. I'm not sure mm -hmm. what the right word there is. But for me, more personally, it's the opportunity to, to influence um, in a way that's significant. Human spaceflight. I mean, um, I can't think of a, uh, a better time to spend, better way to spend my time um, for myself personally challenging me, but also contributing to, to my kids, my family. Um, human spaceflight is, a, is an impressive, um, grand, bold um, effort that uh, to me is absolutely worth it from a, um, again, a personal perspective. In anything I do, I look for three things. I want to have fun, I want to provide value, and I want to learn something. And I, I challenge somebody to, to point out something other than human spaceflight that could more maximize those three things. Now we do, we have explored space without people. We've sent robots, landed them on Mars, for example. Why is it important to send people out there? To do yeah, that? I, I think um, um, sending people is significant from the perspective of um, adaptable, flexible, understanding the situation, being able to respond to the unknown. If it were routine that we could write a script that allowed a robot to pick up a rock, fine. But if we programmed it to drill an inch and we realized, you know what, two inches, I see something there, I can respond, I can adapt. Um, just having that ability to overcome obstacles, um, being able to reason and think, um, makes sense to me from a practical perspective. And don't get me wrong, I think this, the robots serve a huge, huge piece of this and, and being able to go with uh, the technology that's available, man, that only makes the human aspect uh, more important, but uh, um, exciting. Yeah, well, there, there's something about uh, having a person, having a human on a mission. Uh, first of all, take our, take our one orbital flight test to date, exploration flight test one. Right. It was, there was nobody on board. It was a four hour flight, but it was a flight that went higher in altitude and a more energetic orbit than any other uh, spacecraft designed for people had done since the Apollo program ended. And I had a feeling, I think everybody in the program at the time had a feeling for a short period of time on, on the couple hours before and after on that day, it felt like the whole world stopped to watch because here we were doing something really bold, really, really brave again. So it's, I think it's, there's a factor, there's something that happens when you bring people into this endeavor that changes it from just a machine uh, to something that more people relate to, get excited about. Does it make it seem more real to people, do you think? Is it something like that? That, it, there, that could be me over there? I think so. I think so. That's it's one of the reasons, that's one of the, one of the feelings that affected me. Yes. Yeah. It's a person. I think people 
see themselves as explorers. It's, 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 it was interesting to me, the social phenomena of anthropomorphizing opportunity, uh-huh. right? I mean, my children came home from school and my daughter was crying because Oppie died, like died. You know, I mean, it was like terms like that. about the Mars right? rover. Yeah, the Mars rover, like yeah. Oppie died. And, um, and I, I think it, that shows that we see ourselves, you know, it's not, it's not we see ourselves on these other worlds. You know, I, I, I'm always amazed. I used to read Isaac Asimov when I was growing up. And this concept that we've always seen that we, we've, we are going to be other places. It may take us time to get to these other places, but we're not going to just stay here. And I think that's reflected with when we go send a rover out, we are finding a way to put eyes on that rover and we're finding a way to make that rover us. And I think it's just this, there's this inherent part of us that that is about if we know of a place, how do we go see that place? And it's, it's kind of what got people to get on a boat and go to a shore. And we actually, in some ways, have more knowledge than they did about the worlds that they were going to in right. some places, right? Now, the challenges we have are may seem to us way greater, and I'm sure at the time, if you're, I'm always amazed when you see those rickety boats and you think, <laughs> oh my gosh, you got on that boat and then headed out into the ocean, like, that was that crazy. That was state of the art. Well, that, but that was also <laughs> crazy, right? And so, so I mean, but, but there's probably some people that think, hey, you go get in a little tin can and go out and, and, in the netherworld, and that's crazy. But, but look at what came out of it you know I think sometimes we don't know what's going to come out of it and but we do know what has come out of our exploration activities in the past and we know that if we if we don't explore we're not going to ever know part of being human is seeing it through someone's eyes and so it's it's today it's the easy analog is music or art you know um those things are part of the human condition. I think our lives are rich because of, of, of those things. We need humans, the ones who can go and describe it to those of us who didn't get to go. We need them to be there and describe it. So I think not only do we need them to be part of the system, we need them to be part of the experiment, but we need them to be able to bring the rest of humanity with them. And I, I really do think that in the near term, that's what human spaceflight is all about. Long term, there's no question I think the species needs to be a multi-planet species. And so for, I believe ultimately for the survival of the species, we need to be able to live in other places. Now, that's probably not in the next 10 or 20 years, but uh, I think that's the direction that the human species needs to go. You probably have your own reasons why you believe in putting the human in human spaceflight. And they very likely go beyond the Cold War political reasoning that was part of the calculus when President John Kennedy set the goal of landing Americans on the moon in the 1960s. When I asked today's guest for their thoughts about why it was important to return people to the moon, none of their answers had to do with political motives. They believe in making a practical use of the moon, which is relatively close to Earth, to get ready for missions that will go thousands of times farther out into space. Learning those 30, 60, 90-day missions in, around the moon and on the surface 
allow you to use those resources, understand how to work in that environment, that's a thousand times further than the low Earth orbit missions on station that we do. A thousand times further. Hugely different problem. Well, Mars, the next step is 2,000 times further than the moon. 2,000 times. 2,000 times further than the moon. And that is a whole, you've got to build those capabilities. It's, it's a really good proving ground before you go to the next step. But, but you've got to take those steps, and you've got to take them before when the time allows you to get there and, and get it done. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're not going to survive as a, as a, as a civilization. So going, so the ultimate goal is it, to get us to Mars and then beyond, of course, but to get us to Mars. But going to Mars is really, really hard. Well, going to Mars and bringing someone back safely is mm-hmm. really, really hard. And so the moon really provides for us a, a way to, to practice and learn the things we don't know already, right? And so to go back to the moon in a long-term sustainable way, learn how to live there for a period of time, learn how to you know, live off of the resources on another planet, um, learn how to take care of the human body in an environment that it's not meant to be in. Being on the moon for a sustained period of time will help us learn all those lessons while we're still relatively close to home, right, before we take that really big leap onto Mars. 250,000 miles is your definition of relatively <laughs> close. <laughs> Relative to Mars, that's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, so flying uh, in low Earth orbit, right, which we've been doing for many years, uh, you know, with the space station and, and before that with the shuttle, you know, teaches you a certain set of skills, right? Um, how you communicate with people on orbit, how quickly you can get home if something mm-hmm. goes right. wrong. You know, once you get outside of low Earth orbit, go farther away from the Earth, you know, to the moon in this case, you know, you have a different set of technical problems to solve. And if you're a flight director and and work in operations, you think about in terms of risk. Okay, how long does it take to talk to someone? They're on the backside of the moon. Can you talk to them at all? If something goes wrong, can you get home? How often can you get home? How fast can you get home? And when you think about all of those challenges that we will get to solve um, and then sort of move that thought forward even farther out inside outside of low earth orbit past the moon and into the solar system those challenges only get more complicated and so you have to transition to a system that can't rely on you know everything back home helping you out you've got to have more autonomy with the way we look at flying in space and and so that's just sort of one example of how much we're going to learn by getting to the moon and staying there let's keep in mind In today's NASA, under the Artemis program, the goal is not to just put people on the moon, as we did two generations ago. The goal is to return American astronauts to the moon by 2024 and establish a sustainable presence on the moon by 2028. From there, astronauts can make scientific discoveries, demonstrate technological advancement, and lay foundations for private companies to build a lunar economy. I think part of what the Artemis program will do for us and, and the Gateway is learn how to pro, um, to develop and fly reusable spacecraft architectures, right? You know, Apollo, think of it as a point solution. They went to a specific destination and they came back. Um, the Gateway and the Artemis program will allow us, I think of it more like an infrastructure. We build an infrastructure that allows multiple spacecraft to come and go and how do we operate that infrastructure and how do we reuse vehicles so that we're not disposing of them every time we want to fly a mission and every the more we learn about that the more we bring the cost down the overall cost Mm -hmm. down and when it becomes more affordable we can start doing more and when we can do more we can go farther
Kirk Shireman's been working on the International Space Station program since the first component, the Zarya module, was still in a factory in Russia. So he knows something about creating a system that will support a vehicle in space or an outpost off-world. Sustainable is a really hard thing. It's a, it's a really difficult thing. Ask the International thing. Space Station. <laughs> yes, and, and the further away from home, the harder it is. It's, uh, it, uh, so even learning how to be sustainable uh, in that sense is going to be difficult. Now, the moon, uh, the moon is a lot further away. From, in the International Space Station, you can be on the space station and, and be home in a matter of you know, three-ish hours um, uh, in fact, we did that here Monday night. Mm -hmm. um, so, but if you're in the moon, if you're at the moon, uh, certainly on the surface of the moon, but even in the vicinity of the moon, you might be nine days uh, from coming wow. home. And so that's a big change, you know, three hours to nine days. And so e even that and keeping humans alive and safe in that environment, I think, is, uh, is, a, is a great thing to learn. Uh, how you put things on the surface and... Uh, and then how you hook up to those things, how you link up with those. And when you arrive there, a lot of practicality. How do you build things with the resources that are present on the moon was great. And, and that technology can be used here on the planet, so on, on, on Earth. So what we do out there, I think, will also have benefits back here. Um, I, I, I think uh, people are already working on, on building uh, habitats with uh, lunar soil, lunar regolith right now. Uh, if you can do that, you could do it here with uh, with uh, Earth, and so I think there there are benefits that we'll get back here, even from from basic engineering things that we'll do on the moon. And presumably, the what you've learned doing that on the moon may be then applicable to doing it on other further away uh, planets. Sure, I you know who knows? I, I hope so. Uh, I, I think uh, when I talked about making rocket fuel out of the out of the ice or the water that's right. there. We certainly think that's uh, applicable in other other places. There's, uh, uh, you know, m moons around Jupiter that that we believe have water ice, and so you can envision in, in the future doing the similar thing out uh, out there. So, uh, the, Mars has an atmosphere of carbon dioxide, which doesn't quite scratch all the itches for rocket fuel, but could be used to uh, to, to convert that carbon dioxide into uh, into useful things for a, for a long-term human presence. So. All this, even this notion of of using the resources that are present, I think will definitely apply not only in the moon, but as we take the human species further and further from home. You're establishing places where people can can develop and actually potentially use the capability that's there. Um, it's not about visiting anymore; it's about staying. This this may be a hundred-year goal, it may be a 200-year goal, but it's in the same vein of if you're going to have a goal, it's about can, is there ways to do it in a way that enables it to be able to expand the potential of the mission when you get up there. This is, these are hard things. Yeah. These are hard things. They are mm -hmm. not easy things. We don't have the answers to how you go do that. But in the same way, I think if we knew what the answers were today, then we're not making our hard goal to enable us to be able to push the learning. And really that's, to me, the value. That's the value proposition. The value proposition is having a goal that's so hard we don't know how to do it yet. And through the figuring out how to do it, that's when we're expanding human knowledge. I think going and learning how to work there and, and, and again, figuring out how to use resources where you find them 
and, and to propel you to the next to the next milestone is what this is all about. If we can't live and work in space, there's only a finite amount of space and capability uh, on this planet. And, and again, we need to protect this planet. We need to preserve it. And we need to we need to push out and learn how to live in that. What is the 99% of the rest of the space we have? Right? Is 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 that type of environment? So we need to get to that environment and understand and live there. You've, you've talked about the things we need to learn in order to uh, provide for our own future as well as supply future exploration. Can you give me a, a couple of concrete examples? What, what kinds of questions do we have about future space exploration that this sustainable presence on the moon is going to help us answer, to get us ready to do those future things? Uh, it, it varies significantly from the simple things that we do and take for granted every day in, in this environment. Um, and we've learned a lot about that on, on space station. But one-sixth gravity is different than, than zero gravity. It's different than full gravity. And so that environment, from a radiation and a thermal perspective, plus 200, minus 200 degrees day and night, or, or shade and, and light, is, is a huge huge challenge of environment to work in and so we have worked in that environment but being able to work there in a way that you can't run home and get spares or supplies on a, on a daily basis means you're so for example our spacesuit design it's 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 significantly more more versatile and significantly more um, um, flexible in terms of redundant systems and capabilities so that when you're out there on your own and you're 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 roving or you're further away from from your uh, from your vehicle, you have capabilities that allow you to get back safely. So managing how to how to operate safely, managing the risk, and learning how to accept the kind of risk that we have to take to get out there are huge challenges for us to face. You can go camp in the mountains for a week. You have to have a certain set of stuff in your backpack. You're going to go build a cabin and stay there for three years. That's a very very different uh, different challenge. And I think that. Uh, the world is really excited about taking on that challenge. And you think about what what's necessary, what resources are necessary to launch that capsule with people in it into space. Um, well, we're not going to have that infrastructure on Mars, or we're not going to have that infrastructure on the moon. Um, so what's available that we can take advantage of to, to be able to uh, do this effort in a way that, that's actually... Uh, um, makes it the potential to be successful. And so, um, you know, you hear the administrator talk today about discoveries of water or ice on the moon right. and, and why we maybe should head to the South Pole of the moon, um, things like that. What are we going to find out when we get there that enable us to say, ah, okay, here's what we can do with what we've, we've uncovered. While the Artemis program is relatively new, it's clear that the men and women who lead NASA's human spaceflight effort have been thinking about putting people on the moon again for quite some time. And it probably won't come as a surprise to you to learn some of the reasons they put stock in just such a future. Steve Kerner, the chief of the JSC Flight Operations Directorate. Looking back over my career, some of the most powerful things that I didn't even realize I was a part of as it was happening um, was that alignment around a common goal, the International Space Station. Human space flight's hard, and yet uh, numerous countries aligned around a common goal and able, were able to put that amazing machine in orbit. Um, we put aside our differences, whether where we lived geographically or our political uh, persuasions or whatever, because we were focused around a common goal, human space flight. Hugely powerful to look at what can be accomplished when you're 
when your team, your company, your organization, your country, whatever, is aligned around a common goal. And to me, that's been the most satisfying piece of this job is seeing, uh, being being a part of a goal that I think is hugely significant and, and watching um, watching the the collective organizations, the the entire team around that same goal be successful. Johnson Space Center Director Mark Geyer. We talked a little bit about uh, what motivated me when I was a kid, and I remember, uh, I remember that time. I remember the excitement and the newness of going to space, and I remember how it affected the whole culture. You know, I had a major Matt Mason toy, <laughs> and I watched Star Trek. Right, it all started in about that same time frame. So it kind of changed the whole vibe um, in that time frame. So NASA's done a lot of cool stuff in in between that. The shuttle was incredible. The station is really a, a, a world wonder, uh, and we're about to do more of that. But I do think going back to the moon um, is such a significant step that I do believe it will amp it will ramp up the attention uh, and the interest of uh, the kids in this country. And if we can show them that they have a place in that future with these, uh, with these companies or with NASA, uh, and that we can continue to, to bring them along and help make sure that they have the opportunities they need to get the education they need. I mean, whether they end up at NASA or Boeing or SpaceX or not, it doesn't matter if they've if it motivated them to get through science or, or, or even, uh, you know, liberal arts and everything else, it gets them excited enough to get through their degree. And we have an educated workforce that's better for everybody. And I do feel like Apollo helped, even if a lot of people didn't know about NASA, right. I th still think it helped our overall um, uh, youth and the country in general. Chief Flight Director Holly Ridings is one who sees potential rewards that go beyond the engineering achievements that will come out of the Artemis program. When I when I think about what we can learn, you know, there's, so there's the technical answer, right? We okay. can figure out how to, you know, build spacecraft and land on the moon and stay there. But I'd say that I'm more excited about what we can can learn as as people, right? You know, how to bring hope and energy and excitement to to the world. You know, something that everyone looks at and wants to be a part of and believes in. Last word today to International Space Station Program Manager. Kirk Shireman. The thing is, uh, going to the moon is a really, really difficult thing. And people remember it now. Uh, people my age certainly remember it. But people that are younger, which is, you know, most of the population of the world, um, haven't ever seen that. And I think that will be really cool. One of the great things that I didn't notice when I was six years old, but <laughs> as I have been on the International Space Station program, I've had a chance to travel around the world and people all over the world know NASA and remember that event. And in fact, I see pictures of people from all different countries all over the world stopping to watch that, that first step. Uh, and I think that's something really, really cool. It's something that brings the whole world together when, when a human being steps foot on another body. And that's something I think the world really needs, something to bring it together. There's so many things today that, that drive us all apart. Uh, wouldn't it be great to have something like that that would bring the whole world together? So I, I'm really looking forward to going back to the moon. I think it'll be great for NASA. I think it'll be great for the United States. But it'll be a great thing for the whole planet.
Well, that was fun, talking with these men and women who lead human spaceflight at NASA today, hearing their memories of Apollo 11, and getting some insight into how that historic first moon landing 50 years ago is connected through the space shuttle program right into today's efforts with the International Space Station and commercial crew and cargo programs into the development of the programs that will help give life to the Artemis program, the Orion vehicle, the Space Launch System rocket, and Gateway. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you want to get more into the details of what's on the drawing boards right now, go to nasa.gov and follow the links to Moon to Mars and to Humans in Space. You can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov. It would also be a good idea for you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You will thank me. When you go to those sites, you can use the hashtag AskNASA to submit a question or suggest a topic for us. Please indicate that it's for Houston We Have a Podcast. You can find the full catalog of all of our episodes by going to nasa.gov podcasts. While you're there, look around at all the other NASA podcasts that you can find. They're all available there at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov podcasts. The interviews for today's episode were recorded from June 6th to July 3rd, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Gary Jordan, and Nora Moran for their help in the production. To Johnson Space Center Public Affairs Officers Brandy Dean, Kyle Herring, Jenny Knotts, Isidro Reyna, and Laura Roshan for their assistance in lining up the talent. And thanks to our guests, in alphabetical order, Mark Geyer, Laura Kearney, Mark Kirisich, Steve Kerner, Kathy Leaders, John McCullough, Holly Ridings, and Kirk Shireman. We'll be back next week.